Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We start the day where we start it every single morning on Phase One Deal Watch. There is no Phase One Deal Agreement yet. I strongly support that, and, and I put this in the script on TV. To me, it's the idea of a one-and-done tariff adjustment, or is it some form of sequence forward, and we still don't know. This came from Reuters in the last 24 hours, an agreement between the United States and China to roll back existing tariffs as part of a phase one trade deal faces fierce internal opposition in the White House. That is where we are right now. Here in New York, I'm pleased to say, is Stephen Stanley, Chief Economist at Amherst Pierpont. Good morning to you, Stephen. Good morning. Your take on the back and forth of all, all of this. The market has quite clearly made a decisive move. Yields higher, equities advance, yet we still don't have a phase one agreement. What is going on? Well, you, you, you need to let the fun play out a little more. I think every day this, this week you come in in the morning and the market's either up or down based on what the latest trade headline is. And unfortunately, it feels like we're going to be dealing with that for at least another month. Yields seem to be higher, though, on positive news than they are lower on negative news. There's a real difference in terms of the market bias investor attitude than compared to maybe three months ago. Yeah, I think people are getting a little more optimistic. There's a sense in the markets that maybe the global economy while it's not great, it has maybe seen its worst days. And if we are going to get a trade deal, that that signals, you know, maybe better days ahead going into 2020. Your take is interesting. The details of a deal are probably less important than the degree of the clarity that it provides. Why so? Because if you look at the U.S. economy, the bulk of the damage that's been done because of the trade situation is not so much the direct impact of the tariffs, it's the uncertainty that has kept businesses sidelined from investing. Yeah. So if they see something that allows them to move forward with clarity, then it doesn't really matter what the details are. It's just getting them back to the table and investing again. And Friday's a game will start, I don't know, 3 o'clock this afternoon. It'll click in on all the blogs, all the analysis, what I call the gloom Friday tone. It's been there every week in this, you know, walls of worry up, up, up in the markets. Steve Stanley, you're going to drive over that with a bulldozer <laughs> with an above 2.5% GDP call for the next X number of quarters. How alone do you feel and calling for a better American economy over the next number of quarters? Well, it's certainly an above consensus call. I would say that it's interesting the Fed has been much more optimistic in their tone about the economy than um, the consensus market view for quite a while, but the markets have focused more on the fact that the Fed has been talking about downside risks. Um, now that the Fed has paused, it feels like the shift has gone away from the risks a little bit and more to the um, to the point estimate forecast, I think, a little bit. Where's the source of growth in the U.S. economy from here? Well, the consumer continues to be the, the uh, sector that's kind of driving the train. But I think to get to a faster pace of growth from here, you need to see a, a little bit of a revival in business investment, which has been negative for the last couple of quarters. And when we talk about consumers, there are discussions about cracks in the consumer. Uh, do you buy that? No. I mean, okay. the labor market is very strong. Uh, consumer balance sheets as a whole are pretty clean. I, I, I think the consumer's in good shape. Do you get the feeling, though, that this might be too little, too late, in f as far as the trade war is concerned, that manufacturing abroad has taken such a massive hit that it might be inevitable that it bleeds across to other parts of the economy? What do you make of that argument? 
Um, I, I don't think that that's inevitable. I guess the, 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 the bleed point, it seems like, would be the labor market, right? Because businesses have gotten pretty cautious on investment, but they're still hiring. Um, is there a point at which they stop hiring? And that was a real concern, I think, over the last few months. And the payroll report last Friday, I think, alleviated that concern to a great degree because not only did you get a better than expected number in October, but you got significant upward revisions the prior two months. So all of a sudden, that slowing trajectory that we thought we were seeing isn't there anymore. Enlighten us on the makeup of the marginal decline in exports. There's a wonderful article at IMF. It was based off IMF research. I think it was in the FT. It talked about global auto demand, unit demand down, et cetera. But when we say exports is, are down, is that six you know tankers out of Portland with soybeans on them? Is that automobiles? Is that IBM computers? What is, is it? IPhone? No, iPhones are coming this way. But when we say we have declining exports, what is that? Yeah, well, it's interesting because U.S. exports, you know, if you look at kind of what are the big categories, it, a lot of it is stuff that you would call kind of low on the supply chain, raw materials. And um, we used to export a lot of waste paper to China, for example, and scrap metal and stuff like that. And then stuff at the very high end. And certainly one thing there would be Boeing. I mean, we know that Boeing exports obviously are kind of dead in the water right now because of the max. Um but yeah, I mean, I think you've seen a lot of volatility from one month to the next, and, and a lot of that is trying to time these changes in, in tariffs. Um, it'll be interesting if we do get a deal and we get some stability to see what happens. Two reasons for optimism now. One, that we may get a phase one truce between the United States and China. And two, there are signs that the global economy is bottoming out. In the trade data today, expectations that Chinese exports may completely roll over once again. Better than expected. Still weaker, but better than expected. Do you see those signs as well, Stephen? And is that more important than a potential for a trade truce that the global economy is showing signs of bottoming out? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's not getting worse anymore. Um, you know, I don't I don't want to jump the gun and say that things are getting hugely are hugely improved from here, um, but it does feel like it's kind of settling in at a bottom and hopefully we'll rebound from there. I do think the trade thing is 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 critical here because even the economies that aren't necessarily yeah. directly tied, and, and I would give the example of Germany, um, yeah. there's no reason that their economy should be affected by U.S.-China trade negotiations, but but it is because they are so highly leveraged right. to trade. Uh, Stephen Stanley, we are, we are just immune on the American consumer. I won't shop below 59th Street. Farrell won't go below Saks. Lisa was seen in Soho like three months ago, I think, shopping. What is the state of the American consumer away from our little, you know, two zip code view here? Yeah, well, I mean, you've got a 3.5% unemployment rate. You've got high consumer confidence and you've got a savings rate above 8%. So, so are we saving or are we, are we going to spend it, you know, this weekend below 14th Street at the Gucci down in Soho? I, I would just say that, you know, most retailers that I've heard from are expecting a very good holiday season. Do you buy that? I was thinking about that walking around, you know, above 59th Street last night. Do you really buy that we're going to have a bang up holiday season? I, I don't see why not. I mean, almost everybody has a job and uh, people are feeling pretty good about things. So, yeah, I, I think we will have, have a good holiday Have you ever got below season. 56th Street? Coochie? Ever? Once. 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 What for? I had what happened? An, I did an interview at the old GE office building, which is, I think, on 53rd. And you had to go for like 56th. <laughs> I was like, the studios were right in Jack Welch's Wait, old did you office. Know? It's it's a climate change. I, have, I have a serious quick question, Steve. Sure. Uh, when you talk about Gucci, the high-end shopper versus the low-end shopper, where will the strength come from? 
Well, I think the good news, you know, there, there have been concerns about, you know, obviously in the political realm, there are a lot of talk, there's a lot of talk about income inequality. But even within the economic circles, I think there had been some concern about the narrow uh, benefits, you know, that the upper um, income households were benefiting all or were getting all the benefit. And what we've seen lately, which is pretty classic for an economic cycle, is as you get longer into the cycle, the, the benefits start to move down the curve. And I think what we're seeing is now you've got labor shortages even for unskilled workers. You've got wages going up faster for unskilled than for skilled workers. Mm. So I think there is some, uh, if you want to call it, democratization of the expansion. Uh, Stephen Stanley, thank you so much for the Emerson Pierpont. Greatly, greatly appreciate that. Global Wall Street gearing up for Friday and for the weekend. Stephen Stanley joining us in the last hour of Amherst Pierpont. And he has a stunning above 2.5% GDP call for the next six months. Very few people out there have that optimism. Stanley adamant it is all linked into trade, which is a good way to bring in uh, uh, our next guest on uh, China. John, why don't you Miranda. bring in Miranda? Miranda Carr, Haitong International Senior Macro Strategist, joins us now. Miranda, great to have you with us on the program. Let's start with the data out of China, shall we? Expectations for exports to roll over. They weaken, but not as much as expected. Please help us understand whether we have seen the worst of the data in China. Yeah, on the trade side, it was actually the exports were only down 0.9%, which is a lot better than expectations. Um, and interestingly, a lot of it seems to be being diverted. So it's not coming from China, but it's going to the US maybe, but it's going to other Asian um, nations um, and also to, to places tied to Taiwan. So we're actually seeing quite a lot of trade being diverted um, rather than necessarily going to the, going to the US market. And the interesting thing is now this is basically you're coming on for a year of the, the trade war really sort of having an impact. And we're now getting into much um, weaker year-on-year comparisons. So actually, if this is as bad as it gets, then for the next few months, we might actually see improving figures from China um, rather than a continued, um, continued slowdown. Miranda, today it was the exports that were better than expected. It wasn't the imports that really picked up. The imports still look weak. That's a story of weak domestic demand for a lot of people. Any signs that things are actually picking up in the domestic economy? Well, on the import side, it's actually interesting. So you've actually got, if you look at the volume, volumes were actually pretty good. Interesting. Um, so uh, crude, crude oil was up like 12%. Um, copper was down, but then you, you had things like sort of the plastics and the, and, and so interestingly, the um, the, the chips, um, chip um, deliveries were actually really strong at about 12%. But it was the value that basically dragged everything down. So if you think the oil prices and a lot of the commodity prices have come down over the last year, so that's making it look worse than it actually, than it actually is. And, you know, if you, if you strip that out, then you're basically talking maybe sort of one to two percentage points down rather than the minus six. But, I mean, coming forward, I think that's going to then also, you do have some infrastructure side coming in. And then the really big debate, I think, is what happens you know, in, the, in the auto market. And that could re- really bring in some sort of a, a sort of flatlining, a sort of activity in Q4 um, after what's been a really big drag this year. So how much is this a story of PBOC liquidity making its way into the economy and we're seeing the pop there? And how much uh, is this just that people got ahead of themselves with the China uh, slowing down into crisis story? 
Well, I think the expectations were that China would be hit a lot worse than it has actually been. Um, I mean, you have had sort of reasonable um, domestic demand. But the interesting thing is the PDOC and the government haven't done, I mean, as they keep saying, they haven't done the flood liquidity and they haven't just pushed out um, um, bank loans. And they've kept things quite restrained, you know, things like the shadow banking um, and also the P2P financing, which is where a lot of consumer debt had built up. They've not actually um, loosened that up because to be honest, what's keeping the, the, whole, the whole economy on the road is actually the property market, where they've allowed you know, some loosening and that's sort of keeping everything you know, going reasonably well, but they've not, um, they've not done a sort of a huge stimulus. So that's basically keeping things relatively stable at the same time as you have obviously the trade war impact. Can they afford to delay all this talk of the week? And, you know, we're exhausted by the talk of the week, but Miranda, can they just toss this into 2020? They, they, they could, I mean, obviously, the, so the trade war um, um, side, they could, you know, if we get a busy deal in December, it's phase one. This is something that China would have, um, you know, decided on last year, they would have agreed to something similar, you know, this time last year, and you wouldn't have had to have all this, um, all, um, all, all, the, all the rest of it. But the, um, but, yeah, but yes, in terms of the, the longer term issues, in terms of, you know, getting to the phase two, um, then the debate is whether China's ever going to concede um, to anything as, as significant as, as the U.S. wants in terms of, uh, you know, the... the um, removing state ownership and removing state influence and removing all the sort of a lot of red lines for China. So yeah, I mean, phase one could get signed, but then phase two—that's that's going to—that's that's a longer term issue, and that may have to wait a, a, a lot longer. Well, Miranda, typically what we would think is that if we go into phase two without tackling the big issues, that it could blow up phase one. The reason why some people don't think that movie plays out this time around, going into next year, is because next year is an election year. Does that change things for you, Miranda? Well, the thing is, the, um, China, the being um, hard on China uh, can play well. If you, get the, if you get the phase one deal signed, and so therefore the agricultural exports and the LNG benefits the, 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 that part of the electorate, um, then that's fine for China and for the US. But in terms of then the, 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 the bigger scale, so that's a sort of, you know, the, 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 the technology, the 5G war, the sort mm-hmm. of AI, and, and a lot of the bigger sort of like state influence, then to be honest, in, in going into an election, taking a strong stance on that may not actually that be that bad if you've already sort of saved a little bit of the economy by doing the, um, by doing the phase one deal. And Miranda Carr, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with High Tongue International. John, this weekend at the Keen Household Movie Weekend, I'm signing up for eight streaming services. November 12th, that's when Disney Plus comes out. You're going to sign up I got a free, Iger gave me a free up on that early, like two weeks early. I've got Disney Plus, Peacock, Hulu, Netflix, the Abramowitz Network. 
What's the Abramowitz network? It's, you know, it's like sort of super exciting. Super exciting. Is that, yeah. is that money undercover on Tuesdays at 1 p.m.? <laughs> Just on it. repeat over and over and over again. That's amazing. Streaming. Lots of people are rushing into that. Geetha Raghunathan joining us now, Bloomberg Intelligence Media Analyst with Disney. That's what we're here to talk about. Disney, the stock up by 6.5% with an earnings beat. And November 12th, they're joining the streaming wars. Geetha, your view on the numbers so far? Yeah, um, thank you. Thank you so much, John. So there was a lot to like in um, Disney's report last night. They're firing on all cylinders. Uh, But I think just as we heard Bob Iger speak, there's really a streaming first mentality uh, with the management. There's a lot of enthusiasm around the Disney Plus launch. This is one. This is going to be one of the most affordable streaming services out there in the marketplace, anchored by world-class brands like Marvel, Pixar, Lucas, uh, Nat Geo, uh, and it's really perfect for the 35 million U.S. households with children who want to immerse themselves in the vast, vast world of Disney. Geeta, I did a long-term vol study of Disney, and I think I can editorialize that they haven't popped like they've popped recently back pushing 22 years. I mean, this surge, this streaming surge, this Iger surge that we've seen, what does that do to buy, hold, sell? Not your buy, hold, sell, but what does that do to the street? Is it out front because of the pop? Is it ahead of itself? I don't think it's ahead of itself. So uh, you're absolutely right, Tom. So for, for for the past four years, I mean, the stock has been languishing ever since 2015 when they first spoke about the ESPN subscriber losses. And this year's April Investor Day was the real catalyst. Um, you know, them announcing the service, uh, the distribution partnerships, the content, uh, everything seems to be kind of working in their favor right now. I think in terms of near-term catalysts, of course, the studio is outperforming. Um, but more than anything, I mean, streaming is definitely going to be the number one catalyst. I think, in general, the street is expecting about a 10 million subscriber number by the end of this year. Disney itself refused to give any early reads on subscribers. They've only pointed to their longer-term 60 to 90 million Disney Plus subscriber goal, but that's over five years. Uh, but I think the first reads would be in, in the first quarter of their fiscal first yeah. quarter. Um, when uh, if management decides to give any early numbers. Geetha, can we give you a little bit of research here right now? Lisa, November 21, Frozen 2, do you go to the 6 p.m. show or the 9 p.m. show? How about the Never show? Oh, no, come on. You're going to go see the Frozen 2 in the theater the first time? Got to. Got to pay $48 a ticket or whatever. You know, how big, Geetha, how big is Frozen 2 to all this? Oh, it is. It is massive. I mean, if you just heard management yesterday, so they actually reported a 17 percent increase in the operating operating income for their park segment. But really, the driver there was not so much the parks, but it was more the merchandise, a 36 percent increase in Frozen and Toy Story merchandise. Yeah. So this is huge. Well, the Abramowitz boys, you're wearing Elsa and Anna, my, aren't you? My older son said to me when uh, Frozen 1 was hot, uh, all the girls love Frozen. You know, what my favorite favorite movie is my favorite movie is hot. I'm like, all right. What? That's, what is that? It's not. It's he's trying this to be is, contrarian. This is not appropriate oh. for radio. No, like high, Frozen. High, it's op- Continue, moving but, right along. The point I, I, seriously I, I, is Frozen. Star two. Wars is coming out yeah, too. Thank it you. Is, that and the trailer is very cool. But what's serious here for Geetha is Frozen Two moves the needle. I think that there's also an interesting question about fixed expenses for Disney and how much uh, they're going to bring in versus pay out. There was a story about how the fact uh, they have come to an agreement with Amazon. 
uh, Samsung and LG devices in, in order to, to stream their service. They already have uh, agreements with Apple and Roku. How much of a drag will that be? Um, so I think the Amazon deal absolutely adds to their uh, distribution muscle. They've already pointed investors to the fact that there is going to be some upfront costs with the streaming service. I mean, this always happens when you need to build uh, up to scale. Um, so they've pointed that to, to the streaming services not actually bringing in any profits for at least another three to four years. So 2024 is when Disney Plus breaks even. Uh, it could break even earlier if uh, if they totally hit the ground running with the subscriber number. So we'll have to wait and watch. Geetha, always great to get your thoughts. Geetha Raghunathan there, Geetha, Bloomberg Intelligence Media Analyst. Weighing in on the economic data, I'm pleased to say, joining us right now, Atlanta Fed President Raphael Bostic sitting down with Bloomberg's Michael McKee and Alex Steele. Welcome now, our Bloomberg television and radio listeners, and joining us here for a special conversation is Raphael Bostic, president of the Atlanta Fed. You're the perfect one to help us answer all these questions. Uh, you said yesterday uh, that you would probably dissented and voted against an interest rate cut at the last FOMC meeting. Why? Well... One of the things that we try to do in the 6th District is really get a sense of what's the trajectory of the economy and how much are the risks out there being taken on by businesses and consumers. And in my canvassing of our district and hearing from my directors, we just weren't hearing that in a material way. And so we had already done a fair amount of accommodation. We'd moved twice already. And it, it was my view that we really should just let that go and let's wait and see how it, how it plays out. And if then, if then if we see that there's more need for accommodation, we could act at that point. We'd already done a lot, and I was willing to just let, let's see how that plays through the economy. Well, are you concerned that rates are too low now, that uh, there's an issue with where rates are with inflation quiescent, what would be the problem? Well, I think, first of all, I think we are slightly accommodative, um, and that's fine. I don't think that our position now is likely to to spark the economy to get into an overheated mode where we might expect there to be some weakening in response to that. I worry a lot about the policy space that we have. Uh, we are at, what, at a half to three, one and three quarters. That's not a lot of space. When you think historically what responses have been in the recessionary to a recession, we don't have that much space. And so I want to make sure that, what, that when we do deploy our tools, they're, they're deployed in, to maximum effect uh, in a way that leaves us with, with policy options moving forward. You, you mentioned the R word, recession, and Alex was just saying, and you're the perfect one to answer the question, uh, there seems to be a change in mood, certainly on Wall Street, and the idea of uh, downturn being priced out now, people are getting optimistic. Have you seen that kind of change on the ground in your district, or did Wall Street see something that the businessmen men you talked to didn't see? So my business contacts have been consistent through this entire year. The consumer's been solid, their revenues have been solid, their profits have been pretty stable. Actually, for many, it's more than what they expected in, in, at the beginning of this year. 
And what they've told me is that they're expecting that to continue on into 2020. So I've not really heard much of a change in perspective. They've always been in that positive space, and that's pretty much what we're expecting moving forward. And to add on to that, to the speech you gave yesterday, we have a, a quote from it that sort of encapsulates that. So trade policy's impact in the business sector as a whole remains modest, slowing capital expenditures by a few percentage points and leading to a small change in overall employment. So like you were saying, it's not really doing that much. So walk me through what higher yield do then because we freak out like when we go from you know 1.3 to 1.8 and there's lots of volatility Wall Street the market we freak out what what, what does it mean for you well for for me and and for many businesses I think they take a longer view so this this day-to-day volatility is not stuff that really affects them because it's not what's driving their consumers when they walk into their stores to buy goods so so I think that you take a longer arc and when you see the longer arc the risks, they're out there. There's uncertainty that's out there. Much of it hasn't actually been resolved in ways so that we know what the impacts are. And what I'm hearing from businesses is that uh, they're gonna, they understand their uncertainties, that it's a wide set of them. So they're making contingency plans. They're starting to think about diversifying supply chains and ways to get goods to market. Uh, but it's not with a level of panic or consternation that, that uh, you know, I've heard articulated in kind of this context. <laughs> well, <laughs> when, you look at, when you look at the uh, uncertainty out there, and everybody blames it on the trade wars and things like that, uh, are companies saying that they need to expand but they're afraid to? Or are they pretty much comfortable with the resources, the supply they have to meet demand? I think it's more the latter. So for many businesses, 2018 was a record year in terms of performance. And so staying at a record level is not a bad thing. And so I think that staying at this level is something that businesses would be comfortable with. Of course, if there were opportunities to grow and do things that were pressing, they would want to do that. Uh, But in that context, the biggest constraint that I'm hearing them say is finding quality labor, finding workers. The labor market is tight. And, we, and they're looking for ways to get the right people into position so they can take advantage of opportunities. If you're watching Bloomberg Television or listening to Bloomberg Radio, we want to welcome you. We're speaking with Atlanta Fed President Rafael Bostic. Where is the labor market most tight? What sectors? So um, I would say not in sectors. I would say at segments of the labor market. So one of the things that we are hearing a lot of is trying to get entry-level workers, like in restaurants or like, has become extremely competitive. And so you know, businesses are changing their, uh, their screening requirements. Drug tests, in some sense, are being dropped. Uh, looking at uh, prison records is being dropped. Uh, we even heard of a, of a, of a, of a restaurateur who is uh, hiring you, and you started on the same day. So they're getting very aggressive in terms of trying to get that entry-level worker, and the wage pressures for that segment are significant. Certainly, we know that engineers, tech people, nurses, places where either the economy is super, super uh, 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 strong for that and looking for those sorts of workers, or where we know we have shortages of workers in the case of nurses, for example, or truck drivers, we're seeing definite uh, competition, and that's showing up in wages as well. Well, the question, though, is why aren't wages overall rising given where we are with unemployment? Is there a lot of extra slack out there, or have we just gotten used to a low-wage environment? So I think it's actually a a combination of a number of factors. When I first started this job two and a half years ago, I asked this question. I was a new guy. I hadn't talked to businesses. So I was like, well, we've got to find out why this is happening. Because if you're you're complaining about shortage of, of workers, 
obviously just pay them more, you'll, get, you'll, you'll compete better. And some of them said, look, I remember you know, seven years ago when I had to lay off you know, a third of my staff. That was so painful. I'm going to be very reticent to quickly take people on that way. Others said that, um, look, today's workers, many of them aren't looking for wages. They're looking for flexibility in the work schedule. They're looking to bring their pet to work. They're looking for a lot of different things to bring allow... Bring their pet to work? Oh, yeah. That's we a get... thing? You have your dog under Is the... It... <laughs> Bring your, bring your, you got a cat? I do have a cat. How do you know I'm totally a cat person? I'm a cat person too, so we, we have that in common. <laughs> you guys common. get it. But, but yeah, so, so finding ways to make people work in their comfortable environment, and, and that's something that, that's happened a lot, a lot as well. A third is on the consumer side. So consumers also remember from the Great Recession that you know, the three desks next to them used to have people in it, and now they don't anymore. So, so their willingness to push wages has actually changed a lot as well. Now, that was, that was 10 years ago almost, actually more than 10 years ago at the beginning. And what's happening is, is that that psychology, the further away you get, the more you get into a more regular type of mindset, a more historically normal mindset. And so what we're seeing now is we're seeing pretty significant, if you look at our, our wage tracker that we have on our website, you're seeing a significant jumps in um, wages for people who are changing jobs. Right, so this, this notion that you're starting to get some energy in the churn of the labor force, that's an important sign that, that things are actually not so irregular and that we may be getting back into a, a more normal phase. In this political season, there's a lot of talk about two Americas and uh, how some are doing really well, particularly urban areas. You've got some big urban areas in your district, Atlanta, Miami, Tampa, yes. uh, Birmingham, and you've got some very poor areas. Are there two Americas? Do people see things differently as you travel around your district? Question. There are definitely multiple Americas, right? So, you know, as I've gone around, and our district is incredibly diverse, we have the big places, we got a lot of smaller places. If you look at the map, most of my area is not the big cities. It's smaller towns, it's rural, it's agricultural, and, and there are places, many of them used to have like a mill that used to employ a lot of workers, but as the economy has evolved, as we can, we've become more global, um, those things have disappeared. And so you go to places where, uh, like South Georgia, or northern Alabama, northwestern North Alabama, or the eastern half of Tennessee, once you get past um, Ch- Chattanooga and the like, um, you see places where they're not experiencing 3% growth, and they've got population stagnation and their demographics are aging very rapidly. And they're facing a different kind of challenge than you face in Nashville or in Midtown Atlanta where, where my bank is. And so we, we try to talk about, we talk to them differently about the economy and about what things they need. What are the skills that might be required for being competitive in the workforce of tomorrow? How do you think about the region to, um, to really project that region and be in the mind of employers that are looking for that next place to open. And so it's a very different conversation than we have in some of the hot places where it's, you know, how do you preserve affordability and access to neighborhoods and getting amenities more evenly spread across the, the area. We're talking with Atlanta Fed President Rafael Bostic on Bloomberg Television and Radio Worldwide. Uh, what do you do about that then? How do you, can you help these other areas, not necessarily the Fed, but can they be helped with economic policies, or have we moved on to an, a, a time period where you have to live in the bigger cities if you want to see economic growth? 
So I actually think you can do something about this. So, so one is, let's make sure that the people who are living in these places that have stagnated actually know where the opportunities are. One, one of the senses that I've had is there's so much discussion about you know, this global economy, things are changing, things are changing, and in many instances it just stops there. And it doesn't say, well, change actually imposes costs, but it also brings opportunities, and you can position yourself to take advantage of those opportunities. I go to a lot of places and they don't know what the opportunities are. They've not had people have that conversation with them. So that's the first thing because there are things that, like these, these like automation, all these new developments, jobs come with them. Those jobs have a different set of skills and we need to make sure that they, they understand what those skills are. And then that we also have pipelines of pathways so they can get those skills. Because you know, historically in the US we've always had you know, technolo technological disruption. So everybody used to be a farmer. Mm -hmm. Technology came and we don't need farmers. But in those days, we don't need as many farmers. In those days, um, the skills that you needed to do farming weren't so different than the skills you needed to work in a factory. Today, the skills you need to do many of the jobs that are being disrupted out are different. And so we need to have robust and mature uh, training programs and facilities to allow people to get those skills. Is that anything well, that you can do? Well, we don't do that at right. the Fed. It sounds like that has to be all the government. Um, it needs to be um, institutional. It needs to be institutionalized. Sometimes that will be the public sector, the government. Other times it will be the private sector. So um, I've ha I had a director in, uh, from my New Orleans branch. She ran a hospital. She said we don't have enough nurses. She set up a school. Uh, and, and so, so what we're seeing is many different blends private sector, public sector, pri public-private partnerships, nonprofits can get involved. And so one of the things that we try to do when we go around is really try to understand what's in that community that can come together to be the building blocks for those strategies to make that change. Well, let's bring it back to monetary policy. Uh, Chairman Powell has talked about leaving rates low to help those people out as much as possible to get the expansion into the uh, corners of the economy. Where would you like to see, how comfortable are you, let me put it this way, with interest rates where they are and how long would you be able to leave them there in order for that to happen? Well, first of all, I think it's really great that the chair is willing to talk about the distributional impacts of monetary policy and the fact that there might be distributional impacts. We know that in economic cycles, there are certain segments of our population that are the last ones to benefit. And so the longer that you can have a growth cycle, the more possibilities and opportunities there are for that group to become part of the labor force and labor market. My biggest concern is that um, if you run low and the, mar the market gets too hot, you know, e almost every time we get to a place where the mar market gets too hot, the labor market gets too tight, um, that's usually a signal that businesses are taking risks. And we often will find that there'll be a recession that comes after that. And when that happens, it is often the case that um, the last ones in are the first ones out. So, so the benefits um, wind up not being as great. So one of the things I'm hoping for is let's get sustainable growth. Let's have this go long, let's have it go in a steady way that we don't get to an overheating uh, position so that when we get those new jobs, they're jobs that will sustain. Now, for me, that's, that's sort of part and parcel of what we're trying to do uh, writ large. And my hope is that we're not going to see those signs of overheating. We're not going to see 
pockets of the, of the economy where it looks like there's significant risk-taking that's building up that might spill over into a broader economic experience or event. So that's, that's kind of where, where we are right now, where, where my head is at. Atlanta Fed President Rafael Bostic, thank you so much. It was really great to spend this time with you. And for all of our Bloomberg Television and radio listeners, thanks for joining us. That was Atlanta Fed President Rafael Bostic. Alex Steele there alongside Michael McKee and the Atlanta Fed President Rafael Bostic. A really interesting conversation. Another Fed official, Tom, really talking up the U.S. economy and more specifically the U.S. labor market. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.